Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we brought together two experts on the history of Russia and Ukraine for a live stream conversation about the past and present of the conflict. They were Simon Seabag Montefiore, the author of histories including Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, and the Romanovs, and Luke Harding, an award-winning foreign correspondent and the former Moscow bureau chief of The Guardian. Luke was expelled from Russia by the Kremlin in 2011, in the first case of the kind since the end of the Cold War. He was in Ukraine reporting for The Guardian just a few days before this conversation was recorded. On the 14th of April, we're hosting a similar fundraising event for Afghanistan with politician Fazia Kufi and foreign correspondent Christina Lam. Register for free at howtoacademy.com. And here are Luke and Simon. Well, I'll start by asking Simon the, the, the question that I've been in Ukraine reporting recently for several months before the invasion and afterwards. And the, the question that everybody is asking is why Vladimir Putin decided after more than 20 years in power that he was going to launch the biggest armed conflict in Europe since 1945 uh, and essentially try and conquer and subjugate Russia's neighbour. And Simon, I, I wonder what your view was. Well, first of all, I should say, like, great to be doing this with you, Luke. I mean, obviously, I don't think there's one answer to this. Um, a lot of it is to do with timing. I mean, I think this, you know, perhaps one should just start off by saying it's, it's perfectly clear that he didn't think it was as big a risk and a bigger gamble as it was going to be. And, you know, I think he thought that, you know, obviously he thought that it, w- it wouldn't be such a, it wouldn't be the greatest war um, since 1945. I think he thought that Ukraine would just fold like a, like a house of cards, hasn't done that. So one has to take that into account. But I first of all think that it's definitely a matter of opportunity. Um, I think it's, first of all, there's a vision, I think, behind it all. And I think his vision is of a certain view of the Russian state, the Russian motherland, and the Russian empire. And for hundreds of years, Ukraine has been a part, regarded by Russian the Russian rulers, Russian leadership, and Russian imperialists as an essential part of the Russian state. Uh, as we'll talk about, I mean, actually, this has all happened kind of relatively late in history. Not all of, and not all of Ukraine came into came to be part of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire until you know in the 20th century. So a lot of it isn't as old as Putin and his apologists claim. So that's part of it. So I think he thought, first of all, that you've got a vision. It's essential. Russia isn't Russia without Ukraine as a colony, a province. And that includes, you know, part of that is the fact that he didn't regard and he doesn't regard Ukraine as a nation or Ukraine as a nation, but merely as little Russians. And um, that also has a long history, that view. Part of his vision is also that he wants to, he, he has a vision of the Russian world, a sort of Russian speaking, Russian Orthodox empire space, uh, a Russia sphere, if you like, and that Ukraine and Belarus are essential parts of that. In terms of timing, I think his mind was definitely concentrated by COVID, two years of isolation, dictators in isolation um, have a particular mental pathology, don't they? I think he saw an opportunity, you know, the the fecklessness of Joe Biden, um, the disastrous withdrawal from Kabul, the breakup of the EU, with British Brexit. I mean, all of these things 
looked like an opportunity where the West was, was in disarray. So I think that's part of it. I think he's been very spoiled by a series of kind of easy victories over Georgia, over Chechnya, where, where I was back in the 90s. And then, of course, in Syria, where, which was mainly a kind of air campaign. And all of these, I think, gave him a, an exaggerated view of the, the weakness of the West, but also the efficiency and ability of his own army. And then there's the personal side. You know, he's 69, he's almost 70. Um, he's obsessed with history, and history is a big part of this. And there's nothing more terrifying than an aging dictator. Is he mad um, is one of those questions. I don't think so. I think within his own world of his regime, um, I think this is rational. I mean, it's very narrow-minded. It's filled, filled with miscalculations and misunderstandings, but I don't think he's mad. And I think that's almost more worrying. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, you know, broadly agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think there's a tremendous amount to go at here. I mean, I mean, on the kind of conspiratorial, mad, sad, sort of bad um, aspect. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. I was talking to a, a very senior Russian opposition person today who's currently in London, who'd also heard the rumors which have been swirling around Moscow that, that Putin is ill, possibly terminally so, that he may have cancer, he may have been taking steroids, which explains his sort of puffy appearance. I mean, he looks a bit like a football these days after, I think, quite a lot of work uh, some years ago. When I was in Kiev, I had a, uh, a rather distinguished neuroscientist who emailed me saying, you know, he'd, he'd reviewed the tapes of his public appearances, and he's, he's clearly got early onset Parkinson's disease. Now, we don't know if any of this is true, and I, I'm pretty certain that that also the, the British and American special services also don't know what, what whether it's true or not. But I agree with the kind of broader point, which is that he's clearly a man in the twilight of his life. You know, this is I think this is it, it, it's been a dramatic, turbulent presidency, but I do feel this is Act Five, maybe Scene One or Scene Two. But I, f I feel we're sort of getting towards the end, and things seem to have sped up very, very quickly, not least inside Russia itself. But in terms of the plan and the war plan and why it went wrong, I mean, I had a fascinating conversation again in Kiev before the invasion with someone from Ukrainian foreign intelligence who, who made a couple of points. I mean, he said, basically, the Ukrainians had already always understood Russians better than Russians had understood Ukrainians. He says it's partly down to language because Ukrainians are basically bilingual. They speak fluent Russian and Ukrainian, but Russians don't really understand Ukrainians. And, and moreover, they have this chauvinist view, this little Russia view, Malarusia, where they see Ukraine as a kind of lost province. And that, that Putin, I think, very much regarded uh, Ukrainians as sort of rural Russians. And and what he did, like like many classic despots, is that he fell, he fell for his own propaganda. I mean, that the Kremlin had been talking for years about Ukraine being run by Nazis, by, by, by fascists in league with the CIA. It's a sort of caricature view of, of, of the country. And I think Putin was convinced that the, the government, uh, led by Volodymyr Zelensky, who, by the way, is Jewish, so he doesn't make a very convincing Nazi, given the fact that most of his relatives perished in the Holocaust, but, but that, that this was a sort of thin, uh, Russophobic, corrupted pro-Western elite, but beneath that was a sort of population of Ukrainians waiting to be liberated by Russian soldiers, and who would greet them with flowers, with, with bread, with salt, with symbols of friendship, etc. And I think he's been really taken back by the fact that the resistance on the Ukrainian side has been has been overwhelming. And so so the so there's a kind of you know profound misreading of what Ukraine is. And also I think 
the other thing is this sort of increasingly messianic note that we see from Putin. As you say, he's, he spent the last two years seeing almost no one, completely isolated in his bunker, in the words of Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader. And he's been brooding. He's been reading, I think, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Solzhenitsyn's famous essay from 1990 about rebuilding Russia, which is also pretty dismissive of the Ukrainians and what Solzhenitsyn calls separatism. And he's been going back to, I mean, I mean, Simon, you've probably read it, but the tale of bygone years or the primary chronicle, this 12th century, uh, early 12th century, you know, narrative written by a monk from Kiev called Nestor, where he, Nestor is writing about the origins of, 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 of Russian civilization, about Kiev and Rus, about things that allegedly happened in the ninth century. Uh, and the idea of Kiev as this sort of holy grail, as the as the the city which gave birth to Russian culture, to Russian orthodoxy, to Russian language, and this sort of primal Slav unity that Putin seems to be going back to. And and just one one last thing before I kind of toss it back to you is what really struck me reading and rereading Putin's essay. I mean, Putin, you know, we, we all had we did different things in lockdown, but Putin, Putin spent you know months writing this kind of pseudo treatise which was published by the Kremlin last summer last June um, and what's really interesting is that he identifies the the villain as, as none other than than Lenin I mean I mean the leader whose waxy body I mean you've seen it I've seen it still sits in Red Square not far from Putin's office Lenin is the villain because he inadvertently created modern Ukraine by 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 creating this sort of socialist Ukrainian Republic in 1922 and it's astonishing that you have a Russian leader disavowing Bolshevism and Lenin and going straight back to the kind of Kool-Aid of 1830s, 1840s Russian imperialism and Nicholas I. And I, I, and I just, just to go to ask you, I mean, I, Nicholas I, I mean, how, how does, how do you describe him and how do you think he looms in Putin's curious, weird worldview? I think what you're saying about the intelligence he received and how kind of how narrow and how misinformed he was by his own intelligence tells us a lot about, you know, the dictatorship in, in Russia, the sort of how it's become, you know, more and more over the last 15 years, a sort of one-man regime. And the problem is, you know, when you, when you are that sort of dictator and you rule by fear and through a tiny group of people that you, you actually trust less and less, you know, you don't want to receive good advice. And when you don't receive, when you don't want to receive good advice, you don't receive any. And so I think that you know, the intelligence community will have a, a lot to answer for, and he'll probably be furious with them. And there are there are rumours that you know he's arrested the top spies who were supposed to be experts on on Ukraine. The, 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 head, the head of the head of the FSB fifth directorate supposedly the fifth directorate is, is under responsible for external intelligence who you know misinformed yeah. and told him the Ukrainians would welcome yes, Russian soldiers. Correct, and he's under house arrest now. So God knows what's happening to him. Nothing good. I think the interesting, I mean, it, is a, it is a moment quite like 1941, when, you know, Stalin was told by the intelligence and many foreign leaders that there was going to be this huge invasion um, by, by Hitler. And he literally terrorized everybody and sort of threatened them to, to actually to execute them for spreading uh, misinformation and so on. And of course, they were absolutely right. And it was the reason why the Soviet Union was surprised on the, on the 22nd of June, 41. So there are similarities with this and it is an occupational hazard. Um, just to go back to your you know, to Kiev and Rus and these chronicles of, of Nestor and so on. Historically, you know, no one, people know very little about Kiev and Rus, which was that sort of the principality 
um, of the 10th century. People know very little about it. I mean, as a united principality or, you know, grand principality based in Kiev, it was very short before it broke up into many, many small principalities owned by the Rurik, um, ruled by the Rurik dynasty. So that's one side of the history. You're absolutely right. But another side of it is very much the age, starting in the 18th century. And you, know, you notice in these speeches, he really has read a lot of history. And you know, he mentions Savorov, he mentions Catherine the Great, he mentions Ushakov very, very prominently the other day in that, that sort of terrifying um, rally. Yeah, yeah. And, and Ushakov's birthday, 24th of February, the same day as Putin decided to invade. And there is a slightly numerological kind of occult element, I mean, which sounds crazy until you realize that Ushakov was made a saint by Putin in 2001. So he's not just a naval commander no. who, who won Crimea for Catherine the Great. He, he, he's also someone you pray to. Yeah. I mean, he's a saint. He's an admiral. Um, he's an orthodox saint. Perfect combination for this regime. And, you know, there's also Suvorov. You know, one of the reasons he gave for invading Ukraine, bizarrely, was that people had taken down a Suvorov, a, you know, General Suvorov statue. In Ukraine. Is that true? He actually mentioned that in his speech on the day before, you know, that very long speech that he gave. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I've, I, like you, I've returned to the article and that speech. And, you know, so 18th century history, the taking of Ukraine. What's interesting about that period is between sort of 1774 and 1791, Catherine Great took southern Ukraine, but she took it from the Turks and from the Crimean Tatars whose Khanate had ruled it for a few hundred years and were a remnant of Mongol rule of, of Russia. So it's very interesting that, you know, they didn't take that from some, from, you know, any Slavic speaking people, or Orthodox people. They took it from, from Muslims, from the, from the Turkish Empire, from the Khanate, which is interesting. And one of the very interesting things is, I mean, Putin keeps mentioning Novorossiya, you know, this, this vision of basically what is now southern Ukraine, which is interesting, I think, because when Prince Potemkin and Catherine the Great built all these cities, Mykolaiv, um, Kherson, Sebastopol, um, Odessa, they wanted them for, for a Russian empire, but there were very few people there then, and they actually needed settlers. So they brought in Poles and Jews, Ukrainians, um, Greeks, Italians. And so southern Ukraine is an incredibly cosmopolitan part of the world, in fact, and Crimea is incredibly cosmopolitan place traditionally, and so this is a bit, these are now cities that that Putin is actually bombarding, and they're kind of Russian. They're Russian-built cities built at the same time as American in the, the war, American independence, basically. Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I mean, j j just on that, what what sort of you know, I've been asking everybody from sort of soldiers on the front line in in Donetsk to anti-Russian demonstrators outside the Russian embassy just before the eve of the invasion, and they all basically reject this Putin thesis that Rus Russians and Ukrainians are one people. You know, Adin Narod is, is how he puts it in Russian. And um, what's quite interesting, I was talking to Andrei Kirkov, the Ukrainian novelist, about this last week. I mean, he, he was briefly in town for an English pen event. And he was saying, uh, correctly, I think, that Ukrainians are basically more individualistic than Russians. He said that they live in a, in a state of unorganized anarchy and that they're always, they always hate their rulers. You know, there are 400 political parties in Ukraine. You know, you, everybody has them. And, and unlike the, the Russians, who the Ukrainians I've talked to are happy, comfortable with autocracy and having a strong leader and so on. And there's this tradition of critical thinking that people I talk to link to, to the period of, of, the, of the hetman, of, of these sort of Cossack leaders, warrior leaders who were democratically elected in the sort of 16th and 17th century. Um, and at a time when actually Ukraine didn't have any kind of fixed boundaries. And I think you're absolutely right about the cosmopolitanism. And what's so terrible and grimly ironic, as you say, is Mykolaiv, but also Mariupol. I was in Mariupol in January, and Kharkiv, these are Russian-speaking cities. I'm, I mean, the idea that Putin is going in to save Russian speakers, well, I mean, he's killing them. Women, children, pensioners are being wiped out and obliterated in, in shelling. I mean, it's quite, it's quite astonishing. And, you know, we, we don't know how this conflict is going to end, this invasion is going to end. But but it's clear that that actually Putin has lost Ukraine. However, it ends whatever shape it ends up being, he's lost Ukraine forever. I mean, Ukraine is is gone. And instead, I mean, this is why someone like Kirchhoff is so interesting. Who writes in Russian, thinks in Russian, dreams in Russian, but is a Ukrainian. You know, the idea that you, you know, Putin equates speaking a language with with national identity. You know, you speak Russian, therefore you are Russian, and should, should be part of his dominion. But what the Ukrainians have built up, really, especially in the last thirty years, is a notion of civic identity, where you can be. You can be a Dessen, you can be Jewish, you can be Greek, you can be Hungarian, you can be whatever, uh, and you can still be Ukrainian. I think that's right. And I think you know, the fascinating thing as well is that the South has just got this completely different background that we just talked about. And then the West, of course, you know, is a very recent addition to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, it was ruled by Poland, but really it was ruled Lvov and so on. Lemberg was ruled by the Habsburgs, you know, for, with Galicia, you know, for, cent for centuries, for 200, over 200 years. So, you know, yes, I mean, the Ukrainians are really different. And, and that is part of it. And you're absolutely right. You know, the Cossack tradition of the Zaporozhye Cossacks, who, you know, elected Atamans or Hetmans in that time, you know, that was a tradition of democracy. It was a totally, it was, it was, at first, there was no nobility. And so there is a real democratic tradition there. And I just think the origins of this country. But what's fascinating about it is as well, as well is, is what you've touched on there is the last 30 years have been very decisive. Peoples are really formed by stories and experiences that they share, as well as language and history. But, you know, in the last 20 years, especially, and particularly since my, in 2014, they've really shared, they've really shared something which has changed something. And Putin, in a completely um, ironic way, has really consolidated the consciousness of a, of a Ukrainian nation, hasn't he? Hasn't he, Luke? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I totally agree with that. Again, this this clever intelligence guy I was talking to, Ukrainian intelligence guy, 
made the same point and was speaking in uh, oxymoronic terms about Putin, describing him rather wryly as as the father, one of the fathers of Ukrainian nationalism. And he just said, look, you know, before before Putin annexed Crimea and started a war in the Donbass, support for NATO was about 20, 25 percent. And and. I mean, okay, Zelensky is has recently rather cool on the idea, but it went up to about 60, 65%. That was all because of what Putin did. I, I mean, and he seems oblivious to the fact that he has consolidated this country, which definitely had differences. I mean, you can call them differences, you can call them divisions. I mean, there were differences between East and West. I mean, they were more... They were more subtle than sometimes Western commentators give them credit for, and they weren't necessarily on linguistic lines, but, but there were political differences. I mean, the East tended to vote for, or, or pre-2014, would vote for, for Viktor Yanukovych's party, the party of the regions, and kind of Ukrainian nationalist parties had more support in Lviv, where I was, you know, very, very recently, uh, and, and, and in the West. But all those divisions have melted away. And, and what we now have is this titanic existential struggle from, from the Ukrainians to, to survive, to, to preserve themselves and preserve their state. And one of the most moving things, you know, when I was there, when I was reporting for The Guardian, is just seeing, you know, we, we talked about sort of critical thinking, but also the fact that Ukraine, Ukraine kind of works horizontally. I mean, Russia works vertically. There's a guy at the top who tells you what to do and everyone sort of obeys, whereas the Ukrainians, have, you know, they've had gulags, they've had holodomor, they've had famine. They don't trust the state and they organize their network like that. And, you know, the, the, the amount of, you know, volunteers, people helping with refugees, organizing food, making Molotov cocktails. I mean, I went to a, to a bomb factory run by, by students in what used to be a kind of club chill zone where they're now making bombs to toss at Russian tanks. And, and the most moving thing was when I was in Lviv, I, I walked past every morning this recruiting center where young guys, some of them who've returned from abroad are joining territorial defense. And you know, they're not all kind of soldiers. Most of them don't know how to shoot. I mean, a lot of them are IT guys or builders, you guys who run their own, own business. Every morning there were 40 or 50 new guys who would stand in line and the kind of recruiting sergeant would say, okay, who's got a car, stick your hand up. And they would sort of march up, they would introduce themselves and they'd go off to, to fight. And, and you know that some of those guys are gonna be killed, but they just feel they have to do it. And I think, you know, wh wh whether Putin sort of prevails, whether he carves out some pseudo-Satan in the South and East, he's never gonna be able to pacify this country because he's hated. And these people are genuinely going to fight him uh, the areas that are conquered, there'll be a guerrilla conflict. He will never enjoy quiet. I mean, I, I do think this is the greatest strategic blunder, actually, by any major leader I can think of, well, since the Iraq war, but, but certainly on the continent of Europe for a very long time. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. No, I agree. I mean, and you know, one just has to say, and sometime in this talk, what you've said, I mean, the resistance of the Ukrainians, the fighting, the coordination is just a sort of one astonishing achievement, isn't it? I mean, not just of heroism, but of technical command too. I mean, of tactics, of a new sort of warfare. 
where um, a, a sort of people's warfare, but also the technology of it is very interesting. You know, the use of these portable hand, I mean, you've seen it, but handheld, um, shoulder-fired, anti-aircraft, anti-tank missiles given by the West. I mean, their use of these things um, is just astonishingly effective. I, I, I mean, you, you got the impression, certainly in the early days of the campaign, that Putin thought he was refighting the Second World War against Nazis. And you had these massive lumbering Russian tank columns, you know, going in as if it's sort of 1939 or 1941. And then you had Ukrainians who, as you say, were, were shooting at them from the forests with with anti-tank weapons. And, and also, you know, at dead of night, you know, racing up and down on quad bikes and blowing these convoys up. And and you can't actually fight a 20th century war in the 21st century when there are Bayraktar Turkish drones, when when there are, there, there's, you know, sophisticated equipment. And I suspect, although I can't prove this, probably very good real-time intelligence from the Americans being being directed at... Um, For sure. Uh, uh, so, something else I wanted to ask you, which I think is, is, is quite interesting. I mean, I'm curious what you make of... Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, because the Russians were convinced that he would he would run away, that that basically there would be shock and awe, this kind of blitzkrieg, they would encircle Kiev, and they'd either kill or capture Zelensky. But you know, most probably he would fr- flee, you know, to America, to his I think, CIA. Handlers. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, I mean, and I that, that didn't happen. But I, just, I just wonder what, how you assess sort of Zelensky's performance really over the last four four or five weeks. I think we probably both agree that it's just astonishing. I mean, it is interesting. It was an interesting moment when he was elected because, of course, you know, the sort of idea of electing a comedy actor um, to be president of a country seemed like a, a sort of desperate um, admission that the state was not, you know, that that state was not working. And in fact, you know, even before the invasion, I mean, he was slightly floundering. His administration was slightly floundering. And definitely yeah. Putin, Putin showed you know, absolute disdain for him. Um, Putin thinks of himself as a czar, as an emperor, as an heir to Stalin, you know, in, as one of the great figures of Russian history, or that's who he's, you know, that's who he's going for, a Peter the Great and Nicholas I, as we discussed. Um, then he, and he's facing this person who is literally, a, you know, performed as a comedian. And then, of course, when it happened, when it, as, as it's happened, I mean, it is one of the great performances of, cur- of political courage and theatre um, that we've yeah. ever seen. Fascinatingly, you know, he's turned out to be a master of, you know, the iPhone and performing for the iPhone. And some of the speeches are moving, are, are, are you know, are, are, are impressive, are astonishing in their courage, but also in their beautiful use of this really what is a new political media, you know, which, which he is the master of. So I think he's just an amazing war leader. He is the sort of poster boy, the front man of an attractive, you know, westernized society. You know, this kind of, you know, calm, charming, incredibly articulate, incredibly brave young young leader is just an absolute contrast to Putin himself and the incredible sort of stiffness and rigidity of uh, the Kremlin regime. You know, where you see where he's standing, you know, he's obviously sitting in these kind of um, these bunkers in his in his um, dacha, um, fortified and addressing people at a great distance. Now, by the way, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the distance, the, the strange distance that he's keeping between between his him and his entourage, between him and his courtiers does look like, you know, he's afraid of illness. And that, you know, so some of the 
you know, it may turn out that some of these rumors about his illness do come true and do turn out to be true. You know, it'll be fascinating to see that because it is very odd. And the length he's gone to, to keep even Western leaders like Macron a distance from him. So I think that's an interesting, that, that could turn out to be very interesting, couldn't it, Lee? Yeah, I mean, Putin is the sort of foremost exponent of, of you know, extreme social distancing that I've ever seen. He's clearly terrified of getting, of getting COVID. It's very um, weird. But it's very weird. But but you, you have him and you have Valery Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, about 40 metres away at the other end of the room across this comically long table. And then you have Zelensky mucking about with his iPhone with his arms around Alexei Reznikov, the defence minister. And they look like a couple of guys on a on a kind of big, big Saturday night out, you know, having having fun. I mean, I mean, it's just this kind of. The, the warmth there. Now, what I was just going to say was this this speech two days after the invasion um, in the center of Kiev and with, with recognizable buildings in the background. And he just says, I mean, he looks knackered. He looks sort of, he's gravelly voiced. He's clearly badly underslept. He's he's a bit like, you know, Prince Hal. I mean, he, he's, he swapped his civilian garb for a kind of khaki T-shirt. And he just says, Yatut, Yatut in Ukrainian I'm here. I'm here I'm here and it's a it's a 30 second clip but but it, it I, mean, I mean it should be taught in communication skill, schools forever because he just says you know don't believe all this false Russian propaganda I haven't fled I'm here we are here uh, we will defend you uh, we will defend you know families we will defend children we will defend Ukraine and then he just says it's become his catchphrase he, he just finishes with Slava Ukraine. And, uh, and, and, you know, if you're in Ukraine, then, you know, uh, glory to Ukraine. And the answer is always, Goroyam Slava, which is, you know, glory to the heroes. You know, it's dative case, Goroyam. It's so moving. Uh, uh, it's so moving. And, uh, you know, uh, and the things, look, you know, my, my job, like your job, is, is to be objective, to be truthful, to be factual, to describe what's going on, to say, you know, unfortunately, when the Russians advance, that they have advanced. You know, we may not wish it, but it's happened. But, it's just impossible not to respond emotionally because it's just so powerful. And when he says the Russians want to kill him, it's true. They want to kill him. They may yet kill him. We, we all think no, this, this ends in a kind of romantic way with Ukraine saved, with Zelensky re-elected, with you know, him winning the Nobel Peace Prize or whatever. I, I don't know. But they may, you know, Putin may just drop a you know, thermobarbaric bomb on Bankova, which is like Downing Street, where we know Zelensky is. And just get him. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, that, and you know, and another thing is, I mean, there's a we 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 have to face the fact that you know, though the Russians have definitely been defeated in the north in Kiev in their attempt to take Kiev, you know, they are pushing on in the south with un, you know unbearable and unforgivable brutality um, and carelessness and bloodthirstiness um, in their sort of grinding chaotic way. They are. They are moving, you know, they are advancing, aren't they? I mean, and yeah. that's sort of, and it's the South where they've had some success. And, you know, we were talking about this, you know, we've talked about this together, Luke. It's just, you know, there's a great pattern in Russian history of, um, I mean, take the Finnish war, for example, which is the sort of most sort of most direct parallel to this in a way. You know, Stalin and Hitler agreed that they could divvy up Eastern Europe. Stalin was given the Baltics and 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 Moldova, Bassarabia, part of you know Moldova and and Finland, 
and he wanted to improve, improve the security of, of Leningrad. So he just attacked the Finns. And it was there that, of course, they, they invented Molotov cocktails to throw mm. at Russian soldiers. But it was a debacle. I mean, the, the vast Russian army, millions of men, were massacred by the Finns in incredible acts of bravery that, that conquered the world, that, that the world's heart. But in the end, Stalin shot lots of commanders, um, arrested lots of people, sent up lunatic, murderous um, henchmen up there to sort of shoot people. And in the end, just drove forward, having lost. I mean, no one knows how many people the Russians lost in that war. It may well be 100,000 soldiers. They were in heaps. They were just left in frozen heaps in the um, Finnish woods. But in the end, you know, he did actually sort of sort of win the war. But of course, it you know, exposed great weaknesses in the Soviet Union. And it, it was one of the things that decided Hitler that he could win Barbarossa, he could, he could defeat Russia. But there is a history of this. And of course, you know, I was, I was in Grozny in, in 93, in 94. Um, you know, the, group, the Chechens are tiny people of 500,000 people defeated, uh, defeated the Russians in Grozny and threw them out. And of course, you know, the Russians had to regroup and it was, it was, it was, it was retaking Grozny that made Putin. So all along, he's been made by extreme violence. And it's no coincidence that Kadyrov, the the Chechen dictator, sort of mini dictator, is leading his troops in in Ukraine. I know we're going to get questions any second, but but just one one quick anecdote, which is that we know that that, that Putin doesn't like um, uh, Lenin very much. But when I was being interrogated by the FSB, the you know the spy agency that Putin used to run, I, I was summoned to Lefortovo, which is this KGB pre-detention center in in the outskirts of Moscow. And the officer who was interrogating me offered me a glass of water. This is about three months after Litvinenko had been poisoned in London, which I declined. But I was very struck by the glass. Very wise. Four initials on it. Uh, it said Ogpu, uh, uh, Cheka Ogpu. Uh, KGB, FSB, and they were the initials of all of the sort of you know communist and you know independent Russian spy agencies, main domestic intelligence agencies, and I think I, I, I do think you know sort of if it's not sort of literally reconstituting the Soviet Union, I do think great powerism explains a lot about how Putin thinks about the world, about his eternal antagonism towards the West and America, but also what he's doing in Ukraine is that that. As you were saying at the beginning, Ukraine is essential to the idea of Russian empire, to Russian greatness. Without Ukraine, Russia is not great. Therefore, Ukraine has to belong to Russia. I think that's right. And I think, that, you know, your glass in um, the glass which you didn't drink out of is very <laughs> relevant to this. I mean, the Stalin estate was never dismantled. And though Putin attacked, fascinatingly attacked Lenin, um, you know, it was Lenin that set up the Cheka. The, you know, the secret piece that became uh, Ogpu, NKVD, KGB, all the way up to FSB and today. And, you know, that, that system was never dismantled, even in the 90s by Yeltsin. And it really became the sort of the very um, personification of the Russian state and the Russian motherland for, you know, for, its mem- for its members, for the Czechists, who regarded themselves as a new nobility, um, an elite, an elite whose esprit de corps was really based about this anti-Western, um, anti-Western, you know, Russian ultranationalism as it's as it as it now is. But it was started, you know, it was started by Lenin, who founded it. It was expanded by Stalin. It was never dismantled. And 
you know, Putin is re returning to it. It's very relevant too about the big question is like, is he about to be overthrown in a coup d'etat? I find that possible. I mean, you know, there are many, many examples I've written about in all my books of coup d'etats and, and um, you know, czars and, and general secretaries being arrested and, and horribly executed. But, you know, every Russian leader exists in a state of ferocious vigilance. And Putin has set up a vast sort of security um, apparatus appoint with his own appointees to hold the line to protect him. And it's going to be pretty hard to do that. And, I, you know, Stalin died in his bed. I mean, obviously, if this does turn out to be a total debacle for Russia, um, then all bets are off. But it'll be very hard to get rid of him. And perhaps that's a good place to talk to, to say more. Lou, do you want to say something on that? Note? Yeah. Well, well I, I mean, just that I agree. I mean, he, he's clearly he's clearly haunted by the kind of Gaddafi scenario of of, of just being dragged out by a mob and publicly executed. I mean, that this is this is, I think this this drives a lot of his behavior. The fact that he he he's been so repressive, and we we haven't talked much about what's happened in Russia over the last few months. But in essence, it's turned back into a sort of grey 21st century version of the, the the USSR. I mean, one Russian I talked to said, I woke up in my Moscow flat two weeks ago or 10 days ago, no Facebook, no Twitter, um, no echo of Moscow, the main opposition railway, uh, uh, independent ra radio station. And as of two days ago, no Novaya Gazeta, the, the yeah. last independent newspaper in Russia, the paper of Anna Pol Polikovskaya, whose editor, Dmitry Muratov, won the Nobel Peace Prize six months ago, has shut. I mean, it's become essentially we've gone from when I was there a decade or so ago from soft authoritarianism to full blown totalitarianism. I really I really don't think that's overstating it, where any form of dissent, even holding up holding up a blank piece of paper is a crime. Yeah, um, it's a return, it's a return it, it, to it, Stalinism. It, it's alarming. It's Stalinist. It's more extreme than the late Soviet Union. It's Russia is in a dark, a, a dark and terrible place. It's 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 a, it's a tragedy. This week's podcast starred Simon Seabag Montefiore and Luke Harding. The producer was Esme Bright and the editor was John Doughty. The series is made by me, Vas Krishtadulu, and Dana Outcult. Simon has appeared previously on the show. Long-time listeners will remember that in 2019 he picked a selection of speeches that changed the world, and they were performed by an all-star cast, including Jason Isaacs and Papa Esiedu. You can find it wherever you're listening to this. See you next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>